This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. So I know there's a lot of buzz and interest around agroforestry and food forests these days, but do you really know what the difference is between an orchard and a food forest? Or how to choose the right species for your climate and soil conditions? How about companion plants in the various strata of a forest? And if you're looking to make money and sell products, how can you make a business plan and calculate expenses and profit from a system that could take years to mature? Luckily, my friend Jacob Evans and I will be covering all of that and more in our upcoming course on profitable syntropic agroforestry. In the beautiful setting of the Spanish coastal mountains, Jacob and I will take you through the practical learning experience of designing and planning all the way to putting plants in the ground for a profitable syntropic agroforestry enterprise. Early registration discounts are now open for this five-day course from April 13th through the 18th, and because of COVID precautions, spots are limited, so be sure to register right away. Just follow the link on the website or our link tree on Instagram for all of the details. Now, if, on the other hand, you already know what you want to plant and have a design ready to go, I can help you out there too. If your project is located anywhere in continental Europe, you can get the trees you're thinking of planting and a group of volunteers to help you out to get them in the ground absolutely free. I've connected with the team at Life Terra to help them reach their goal of growing 500 million trees all over Europe in the next couple of years. It's an ambitious goal and we need your help. Whether you're aiming for reforestation, planning an orchard business, adding perennial alleyways or hedges to your farm, or simply inspired to plant a food forest in your backyard, we can help make your project happen with free trees and planting support. So if you sign up through the link on the website, I'll also offer a free project consultation to make sure that you get started with a good plan and understand how the process works. Just fill out the information through the link and let's get planting. Hey everybody and welcome back. Now in this ongoing series on building strong communities, we've already taken a look at the buildings and infrastructure that are more conducive to regenerative living and connected populations, but I want to return to a broader range of context and applications from around the world in this episode. Now much like the first session from this series, back with Zach Weiss, in which he profiled amazing examples from around the globe of communities who have come together to achieve incredible transformations of their ecosystem through landscape hydrology restoration, there are so many case studies around the world to draw from. In my own travels, I've witnessed inspiring groups of people who've overcome massive disadvantages such as a lack of access to materials or funds, and even antagonistic governments by banding together in their common vision of a better life and future. Some of the most notable projects I remember from an earlier stage in my work when I designed and built natural homes. There were technical skill training programs for single mothers and disadvantaged youths to give them higher wage and job opportunities when I lived on Lake Atitlan in Guatemala. Now, a few of the graduates of that program worked side by side with me on natural building projects and even ran restaurants that I frequented. In the same area, I also worked with a clinic that had a low cost home building program, which worked with the residents around them to identify the most vulnerable people living there and to build stable housing for them. Back when I was in Senegal, my Dutch clients worked with their local fishing community to create communal meeting spaces near the dilapidated fishing docks in a renovation effort and art project. And they also helped to establish a fresh food market run by the women at the entrance of the town. Here in Spain, I visited a hotel and ranch that are working with local authorities to manage the forest in their area to reduce fire risk by harvesting discarded wood to turn into mushroom substrate. 
an enterprise that also works with at-risk youth from Barcelona to give vocational training and has also hired from inside that group. So many of my collaborators and clients from around the world have exemplified community collaboration and outreach, and I've often wondered if there is a playbook that one could access to begin the nuanced process of bringing people together to work towards common goals. Now, luckily for me, the new book by Dr. James Gruber called Building Community, 12 Principles for a Healthy Future, does exactly that. And I reached out to the author, who prefers to go by Jim, to get his take on the steps in this process. Now, the book profiles tons of exceptional examples of community projects from around the world, some of which Jim has studied and others of which he was involved with directly and helped to facilitate in his role as a community consultant. In this interview, we talk about some of the most important considerations when first approaching a community-based project. Jim outlines many of the key steps that nearly all of the case studies that he's seen have in common and are not to be skipped if long-term success is what you're after. He also shares inspiring anecdotes from his facilitation role and observations of the process unfolding organically in many different places. Jim also gives insight into his toolbox of leadership strategies that are meant to guide newcomers of community development to help ensure that your project gets off started on the right foot. Oh, and a quick bonus for those of you who really want to dive deeper into community building, my good friends at New Society who published this book are offering a giveaway for listeners of this show. So just stick around until the end of this episode and I'll tell you just how you can get a free copy of Building Community for yourself. And a little disclaimer before we get started, I had a short delay on my side of the connection at the beginning of this interview, so you'll hear me sort of clumsily interrupt Jim a few times at the start. Luckily, this doesn't last for too long, so please forgive me for bungling the flow of things at the beginning. And from there, I will hand things over to Jim Gruber. Of all the community projects that you profiled in your book, Building Community, which of the ones stood out to you the most for their unique approach to uniting people? Well, there's two different types. One's the ones I was directly involved with and ones that I indirectly involved with. And so I'll start with the ones I I didn't personally get involved with, but I thought was really unique. And the one in Baltimore, where they were able to get early release prisoners, because there's too much incarceration, uh, to come out and to re-deconstruct these row houses, save the materials, which is ecological, uh, supported by the, the US Forest Service to save trees to be cut too, all the timbers, um, and then rebuild the other homes to rebuild the community itself, had all those factors I thought was incredible. Social justice, environmental, building social capital, it was all there, so that was good, but I didn't do it. So that I didn't do that directly. Uh, and the of the ones that you have been direct, uh, directly involved in, what are some of the emergent properties that you have noticed that set them apart in their ability to connect people and build community? Well, I, I think one of my most um, visceral projects was working with the country of Bulgaria, uh, with the ministry. Um, it was a national project, but it was working with local governments on uh, shifting from and helping the country create their first national environmental policy. So, but the goal was to bring all the local community members together through large gatherings uh, to see how they could shift from their incredible environmental problems after uh, nearly 50 years of a Soviet Russian totalitarian type rule uh, into an area where all these kids came out, they wanted to start recycling. They had the first public hearing 
where they sat and listened to the public and the public screamed and then the public started listening and the public started thanking them. And there was new bonds being built within the communities between the communities and the national government and change. So that was that was a three-year commuting project from here. I had like, I mean, 10, 15 uh, graduate students working on the project. So that was really interesting for me. For sure. But then the Baltic states were very interesting. They created their first community foundations where they actually came together in big forums and, and the mayor said, oh, they'll just fight. No, we'll bring them together and let's see where they want to go, where their vision was, not complaining. And they, we have community foundations now all over the three Baltic countries helping. That, that's what I was involved with directly. It was interesting. And actually, let's take a step back here because I'm curious to know how you got into a line of work that has got you studying the way that communities function and the way that projects can come together in order to build these types of connections. Well, from my work in Bulgaria, I was invited by the World Bank Foundation, which is a more progressive arm of the World Bank, uh, a conference that Eleanor Ostrom facilitated. Do you know Eleanor Ostrom? She's the first woman who won the Nobel Prize for Economics. Um, it was all about uh, building the commons, collaboration and indigenous people. So I was there at that conference with 200 people from around the world sharing what they did to uh, build community-based environmental programs in their countries. And that's what got me started. Now you said uh, you also worked with government. Uh, yes. This is obviously, a tricky and more pragmatic part of working with communities and making them work. Can you tell us about that as well? Well, government's always afraid to give up power and that's even democracy. However, um, from my training at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, the whole idea is uh, getting people to give up some power and grow their authorizing environment, their support to get something done because government never has the kind of really except totalitarians, the kind of tools to force things. So that whole process, so in, in Vermont, um, I was ma managing a town and we wanted to shut down some dumps and build a recycling center and get everyone together. And there was no support by the elected leaders. So we started building a broad groundswell support. And by the end of this whole process, the leaders who did not support closing dumps and building recycling facilities and household hazardous waste facilities came back and said, we worked hard to make this work. So we changed their whole attitude and, and, and brought them along by working from the bottom up. So, uh, and that actually got an award from Hillary Clinton and, and the congressional record on how to change attitudes by getting people together and building trust. So I, I really enjoy that. So that's what I like doing. So I, I've taught this after years of work, I taught at the university. That is really remarkable. And it seems even more special nowadays when people really struggle to come together when there are differences, when we're talking about our political climate and people who are able to bring vast groups and diverse groups together really have a place and are especially needed now. What are some of the key skills that you have found that are required for creating that unity? Well, what we have found is that if you, if you get people together and all you want to talk about is problems, all the oxygen will be sucked out of the room. The first step, and this is, is to build trust and build a positive social norms among the, the participants. That means including everyone in the process. So getting a lot of people into the room, sometimes I had 150, 200 people in the room of different backgrounds trying to come up with a shared vision 
you've got to start with where people want to go. What is the shared vision? And there's processes, there's a future search process, a different process, but getting people to, to say where they want to go and then uh, getting them to trust through that process of sharing. And then the final thing is once they have agreed, we want to go here and here, this is what we want for our future, a shared future. Then the question is, what are the barriers? What are the psychological, economic, social barriers and how they could take them on piece by piece, getting early wins and building that kind of collaborative energy to continue on. That's the approach that I have found, others I've worked with have found and working together. Now in your book, you outline 12 principles for community building. And the first principle is to involve everyone. Now, of course, this seems super obvious, but in practice, it can be very hard to genuinely include everyone's voice when it comes to planning and decision making. What are some of the strategies that you've picked up to ensure that certain people are not left out of the conversation? That is a very good question. Um, and that means, first thing, you make it accessible. So, for example, some of the effort to bring seniors in, you don't do it in the evening uh, or to bring uh, young parents in. You don't do it without child care. You think about the sectors you want to get in there. That means also possible transportation for those who have transportation. <clears throat> so if you put a notice in the paper, say we're having this big meeting, you'll be guaranteed only three or four people will show up. But if you spend two or three months working with local groups that are connected with these people that they trust and say, we'd like you to come by from the seniors, from this indigenous group. Um, if you work through the communities of trust and bring them together, you can get most of the people in the room, yes, not necessarily everyone, but most of them. And then equally important is those who have power, particularly when I work in Eastern Europe, um, uh, terrify those who don't have power. So you have to have a system so those who don't have a lot of power can speak their mind and not get retribution from those who have power. So the structure is also important to protect those who are powerless or have very little power. Can you give me one example from the book, perhaps, of a case study where bringing in otherwise unincluded voices from previous parts really caused a change or a big leap of progress in moving something forward? Well, sometimes we even put an empty chair in the room saying, these are the people that we couldn't get here. And what would they say? But uh, an example is we have a, they were doubling the size of the interstate highway from Boston every up into New Hampshire. A lot of litigation, everyone was suing everybody because they're concerned about how it, it would impact the ecological systems of New Hampshire, growth, uh, costs, all those things. And so local government people, nonprofits, uh, the, the environmental groups were all feeling disempowered and everyone were suing. So uh, the state tried to do a program expert-driven program. This is how we'll train everyone to, to uh, plan for growth. And everyone said, we'll just sue you. So uh, we went to them and asked them, we looked at their stuff and says, you did great. Your ideas are very useful, but you should throw out the entire year of work and start over. And they invited us back after a week of thinking about that. And the approach was to start from the bottom. Let each NGO identify who they think should be there, social, environmental, so forth. Let the local governments choose their representatives. Let the government, federal governments and, and the regional governments choose their people. And we got them in the room. And then at that point, we were able to make serious progress on what people really were concerned about, what their vision was and what they needed to do. And they came up with a practical plan 
Um, they agreed upon how to spend the first $2 million to plan for growth unanimously across 27 local governments, federal governments, NGOs, environmental, social, because they were all building trust. One guy said to me, Gruber, I didn't like it. You made me sit at this table with this state person and blah, blah, blah. And then he writes, thank you. They had a lot to share. We really liked each other and I never liked them before. So that's the sort of, you have to push people to embrace each other in the process. And they're, everyone's different. So I've kind of gone on too far, but that's, that's what I wanted. No, no, that's a fantastic example. And it does go to show that though there are so many perceived differences before we start to communicate, oftentimes those can be broken down by connecting over things that we have in common and looking at ways where everyone can win in the solutions that the group comes up with so that people aren't left out, right? Exactly. And then you do some early wins. You got your vision. You, okay, what, what, what is the lowest, uh, what are the things we could do now that we have the resources? Get some wins. Because people say, well, we don't have the money, we don't have the time, you know how that is. Um, you, you need some early wins. People need positive feedback loops. And that process also builds what I think is probably the most important principle in the entire book is building a positive social foundation or social norms. Norms drive the system. So for example, I've been to in Ukraine, we had a Ukraine daughter. Uh, the positive norms in Ukraine were growing uh, since they uh, got freedom from the uh, totalitarian communist regimes, Russia, over the last 30 years. Today, those positive norms is what, what is embracing their effort to save their freedom, their right to, to have their own country. And um, those norms, besides in a case like Ukraine, you see that in many communities. When the norms are negative, um, it's hard to do anything. When you have positive norms, and, which include things such as uh, support of social justice and um, say equity, um, looking at the long-term ecological conditions are important, not just short-term ex, you know, extraction of resources. Those positive norms really drive future change. And so how do you start to establish those positive norms? It, it sounds like something that takes quite a, quite a while to really get ingrained into a culture, especially if they're working from negative ones. Well, um, as I said, mentioned earlier, the first thing you do is you try to get a diversity of those who are in conflict and everyone else in the room. And then you, you have a structure. You say, okay, where do we want this community to be in 10, 20 years? Not 100 years, 10, 20 years. And people say, well, I want, I want this, I want it safe on the street. Says, I want to be treated equally, you know, and, and, and how do we do that? So you create the vision first, and then you find parts of that vision they all agree with. They won't agree on all the vision, but the vision, they'll agree on parts of it. Uh, one person said on the, uh, the interstate highway from Boston to New Hampshire, what he wanted was 10 acres in 10 minutes. And I said, what does that mean? Just write it up. So I wrote it back. 10 acres, 10 minutes. He wanted everyone to have access to 10 open acres space within 10 minutes of their home. And that drove part of how we get to there. Yeah, so that's find a, some commonality. Yeah. Mm. Is there any? Yeah, yeah, uh, I've got you there. And so you've got an excerpt there in chapter six, which is on supporting research. And it talks about how it's important to ask the right questions. And this is something that's particularly interesting to me, as you can see from doing a podcast, what are yes. some of the questions that it takes to open up dialogue? 
and get people talking who perhaps normally are not used to contributing in spaces like this? Well, uh, I have a lot of PhD students over the year doing research in other countries, international students. And we do what we call engaged scholarship. We don't do research on people. Uh, we don't allow students to do research on people, gather data, take it off and get their PhD. No, we require them to engage with what, what are their concerns about this issue, whether it's climate change or flooding, what are their concerns? Um, and start at that point. I guess the most difficult thing for most people to do is to truly listen, deep listening and not filtering everything through your own lenses. That's not easy. Uh, I have some international students are very angry with what their country did to uh, impoverished people. And they're trying to find research to document that. And I try to get them, no, get away from your already, you know, I understand you're abused, but how can you actually listen so you get everyone's what they're saying down and then work from that. So listening is actually the hardest part. And many uh, political leaders can't listen. They already made up their mind. They pull people together to sell them their ideas. And they, that's, that's the backward approach. That doesn't work. It may work if you have a lot of power. It doesn't work in society where you have positive foundational norms. Can you give me some example of, let's say questions that have worked for you that are kind of, I don't want to yes. say generic, yeah. Yeah. but Here's maybe get the conversation started. Here's a good idea. We're doing climate uh, change issue. We don't go and say, we're here to do climate change and, and help you solve the climate problem. We, we show up and say, okay, we, want, we understand you have some serious uh, flooding issues. We want to find out what you think are changing in the environment and the weather around you. And we're not, we don't even use the word climate change. And people stand up, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or conservatives, whatever it is, and they say, well, the road agent stands up and says, you know, we have all this gravel flowing down the roads now and going into the lake. We didn't used to have that. I've been doing this job for 30 years. Now, I could stand for two hours and give a lecture on climate change by that road agent in that town saying things are different now. And someone says, yeah, I noticed this, too. These homes on the hill are causing all this mud sliding coming down. So they are. Uh, so that's an example of climate change. Another one in Bulgaria, they wanted us to go in there and tell them what was wrong with their solid waste system for the country. And we said, we don't know. We know what we did. We know what worked and what didn't work, but we don't know. So we're, gonna, we're not gonna teach you what's wrong. We're gonna get you together and have you choose a panel to identify what you wanna share from the panel of what's wrong with the current system in Bulgaria. And then they stand up and say, we're killing the young because we're burning toxic waste here, they're breathing it, and that's, and that's going to our water supply here. Things that I could have never said. They said, the Bulgarians said, when we asked them to share what the problems were, they said, quote, low culture. We have low culture. We have to change our culture. Can you imagine it? Someone from the States coming in and said, well, you got to improve your culture. You see yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. the question is, you've got to push it back and say, you identify what the issues are. And that makes all the difference because then they own it, their issue. It's how they say it to us more important is not just the, the issue. So in the climate change case, they came together and they realized that they had to make changes. And they started saying, yeah, it's probably related to climate change because we see it here. Uh, and so they got five towns to work together because the five towns all around this large water body, they were all putting it. Uh, so that's, that's the approach. Or in uh, um, Al Albania, 
we had uh, Lake Orhead, uh, which is on the Albania Macedonia border. I was there with, I had a workshop on how to conserve the lake because they're fishing with dynamite, for example. No joke, they're throwing dynamite in. Oh, no, I've seen that. Water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I had a, so in three languages, Albania, Macedonian, and English, we had a, a brainstorm of, of what they, why they value this lake that they're doing these things to. And from both cultures, they said, it's a gift from God. Okay. And they realized they had a gift from God, both from Macedonians and from Albanians, and they had to do something to save that gift from God. It was their ecological system, their food supply and so forth. So you've got to get them to come out and share. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And it also helps me to understand better some of the contexts that I've lived in around the world where there has been a very heavy presence of social projects, both from governments and from non-government agencies. And I have observed, certainly there are some effective ones, but it wasn't the norm where people from outside of the culture, outside of the country come in with an agenda of what they want to happen, what they need to improve. I'm sure right. you've seen this a lot as well. I've seen it's big, about big that. <laughs> and when the money's gone, everything collapses, go back to how it was. Yes. Exactly, exactly. You know, the cases in Africa, the, all the African cases, uh, local Africans wrote these cases, how we did it ourselves, or in Haiti, how we turned, we fixed the water supply. We know how it works. It's, it's our project, yes. It seems like it starts exactly from what you're talking about, of not having an understanding. Nobody bothered to get in there first and ask the locals what their challenges are and what they see as the difficulties or the problems that they are facing. Yes. So like in Haiti, if you go in and they say, what are the most important, what, what, what are your vision for this community that has a lot of challenges? And they say, well, we want to have clean water. We want this. Uh, then, say, so uh, how can you help solve this? Well, we get a lot of money from someone. Now, now, how can you help solve this? We might be able to find research. How do you want to do this? Well, we have volunteers. We could dig these, put this pipe in, and we could do this. Uh, in, in Bulgaria, a friend of mine was working. They had... They lost nearly all the water was seeping into the ground. So uh, right after the communists left, and this got the citizens to put on ear, ear uh, uh, hearing devices, and they they were going up and down the streets finding the leaks so they could fix them. The citizens going up and down the streets. Now I tell you, when the citizens go up and down the streets and they find the leak and they fix it, that citizen is now part of that community, saving their own community. There's a difference. Yeah, there's an ownership in that that you can't supplant from outside. That's right. It's not an expert-driven system anymore. It's everyone working together. That makes so much sense. And in Chapter 9, you yeah. write about embracing feedback. And I think this ties right in. You talk mm -hmm. about monitoring and the feedback using nature as a guide. Now, from what we've been talking about, that feedback is, is listening to the answers that come from these open-ended questions and identifying what people see as their own challenges rather than you know, supplanting them from outside. But right. monitoring using nature as a guide, how does that work in the context of communities? Well, if you look at nature, ecological systems, they have dynamic feedback loops do very well. And once they have very slow feedback loops, crash and burn. Um, so the whole idea of, of setting up systems with their dynamic feedback loops, you can make corrections that aren't costly. Um, for example, in the United States and through parts of the world, we had kind of a, this global urban renewal when we invented concrete 
reinforced concrete in 1960s, 1970s. And we built horrible buildings in Eastern Europe, in the United States, we have urban renewal, and there was no feedback loops, it was top down. And most of those places are, they call, um, they call that architecture, um, um, uh, brutalism. brutalism. Brutalism, yeah. Most of that is being torn down now, but it wasn't done with any feedback loops. It was done with top down in Eastern European, communist countries, capitalist countries with federal government. And, and so that there's no feedback loop. So I think if you come up with systems where you constantly have feedback loops, you check in all the time. I know communities who do things, they have every year they have a celebration, they check in what worked, what didn't work and make changes. And that's how nature works. Um, and we try to get rid of, you know, when we disconnect how nature works and, and try to just do an expert driven, this guy seems to know what he's doing, we we'll just follow him until we go off the cliff. Um, so, it, and this is not popular with those who like uh, expert-driven society, um, you know, and I'm not, not even going to Russia, I'm not talking about uh, American city, certain governments, they, they, they don't like that. Yeah, that sounds like quite a challenge. And it actually, it ties into some things that we're working with in the company that I'm also uh, collaborating with at the moment, Climate Farmers. We're a new startup. And one of the things that we're really focused on at the moment is shortening the feedback loops, both within the organization and with the farmers that we work with directly in order to have a quicker, I guess, understanding and a turnaround of the products that we're building and making yeah. sure that they're effective before we build out large things that we later find out are actually not effective or not what people wanted in the first place. Exactly. And, and so uh, it's much more effective and um, it's more inclusive too. And so it ties into what we had just been talking about in including as many voices as possible and yes. asking the right questions. Are those two aspects that are essential for these feedback loops you're talking about? And listen. Hmm. You can ask the right questions, but if you don't listen to what they're saying, if you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. And so might, listening is one thing. It's, you know, taking in information, but there's deeper listening. And I'm sure you could say a lot about the different levels of listening that we're striving for here. That, that's right. And it, besides asking some of the right questions that aren't loaded, the last question should always be, what did I not ask that I should have heard? What have some of the things come out about that that you've you've heard as responses? Well, uh, they may talk about part of the systems that you're not aware of. You you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know? And so it may be, oh, uh, I'm trying to think of good some good exa examples. Our assumptions are just you know what I mean. Um, That, that it might impact them in a way that you never thought of. I can't, nothing comes to mind right away, but it, it's, it's always like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Sure, um, I'm sure it's different each time, right? It, it, Almost by definition, it can't be anticipated. No, it can't be anticipated. But so that's a good last question to ask. Um, and it also, people sometimes want to tell you what they think you want to hear. Mm. So you also have to do systems, for example, where they have a, some autonomy because people are afraid. So when I had say the ministry working on some issues, I'd have those who are local government or um, citizens at universities in a separate group so they could actually speak because some will not speak 
with the other people in the room. And then I've had situations where I was looking at government, I had a, a town, a city planner who used information against uh, people who were powerless. So I had to fire him, <laughs> things like that. So there are those people you have to get rid of. Mm. Yeah, that must be a difficult thing to identify and then make a decision on. Is that also something that you try and make as a decision with the community? Oh, I, I don't make decisions. Well, yes, I, I brought in an ex external person to do all the interviews of all the people anonymously so I could get the information clearly. Uh, I assume that what I hear know is limited and you have to get better information. Hmm. I mean, just because I have too many academic degrees, I feel like, you know, like people aren't willing to always share what they're thinking. So you have to get away from that. You got to get it from other sources. <laughs> well, so in dealing with conflicts like that, and I guess it lets me to, to jump ahead all the way to that last principle, which is resolving conflict, right? The yes. first aspect of which is conflict prevention. Now, I've both witnessed and been directly involved with projects that have failed and communities that have broken down because of conflict. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about what could have been done to prevent these failures in communication and what some of the most important aspects of conflict re resolution need to be learned. Um, you've got great case studies from the book here. What are some of your primary learnings from observing these different communities and projects? Well, what's most interesting is the, the project that rather look at problems, I looked at successful communities mm -hmm. and that was defined as things that were has social vitality that includes issues of equity and social justice and so forth. It had some support for building everyone's livelihoods and looked at the ecological natural resources. And communities are doing all those things and making progress. What's interesting is how few conflicts they identified they had. Like in Excelente Juarez, Mexico, a community that was at the time up to 1980s the national government was clear cutting their force and taking the money for a few powerful people. And they basically had a revolution throw them out. And they stopped cutting, they only cut a few trees for furniture making, they made furniture and ecological, they put land conservation, ecotourism. And they developed some common norms, positive norms again. And that's one example where I talked about conflicts. And, and I talked to not just the boss, but the workers and, you know, so we actually don't have a lot. We disagree on times. We don't have a lot. We, we actually have common values that we're working together with now. And so I was actually surprised with how few conflicts, because I've seen a lot of conflicts in groups, how few conflicts the ones that were doing well had because they had some common norms. And norms comes to the word just normal. What's normal? And so it had common norms that were positive that they understood from each other how we had to do things. We have to learn more about this. We need to do this. We agree, we talk about this. And so I think the way to reduce conflict is actually build positive norms at, at the beginning as part of the process. And then yes, you have conflicts and have a system to uh, recognize them and work them out, not um, deny them. Well, it seems these common norms that you've listed are fairly inherent to all of the communities that are observed and essentially are inherent in people. We all have similar priorities and visions for what we want as far as like health and well-being for our families and ourselves. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between the communities that have communicated these well or established them as norms 
and the ones that are still struggling with a lot of conflict within their organizations? Well, everyone has different, um, your boundaries. Some people, their, their boundaries and how they work stops at the family front door. Some goes to their immediate neighborhood. Some goes to the town or the region or the country or the world, you see what I mean? So everyone has different boundaries. And that's some of the conflicts because people are very, very willing to do things within their boundary, but outside, I don't care. So opening the boundaries so they see the whole system, like climate change has no boundaries. Well, the earth doesn't affect Mars at all. But uh, so I think trying to change the boundaries. So my observation is when people are feeling like when you bring people together and start working on issues, their boundaries grow. And therefore, there's not a conflict on whether or not they the towns or the community supports the social service agency with some of their taxpayer money because their boundary grew and this is important. Um, people, their boundaries, when people go beyond their boundaries, they have fear. They don't know it, they don't anger, sometimes fear, fear feeds into anger, you know what I mean? My taxpayer money is paying for this other side of town, I don't care about that side of town, you see? And so it's, it's trying to grow the boundaries, I think it's important to reduce the fear, which feeds the anger and build positive relationships that people desire, but they don't always know that until they get to them. Sure, and that seems also important to reducing these narrow identities that we box ourselves into, right? If we yeah. see ourselves as part of a grander community rather than just our immediate area or our single family or whatever other demographics we might define ourselves by, we're probably going to look more favorably on the effects and the collaborations with other people outside of this narrow area that we had otherwise considered. And people need people who are difficult sometimes need some positive relationships. They don't know it, but they need them. Um, and uh, a great story of a very wise person who died many years ago. Uh, there was a, a, a march against nuclear um, growth in the United States. And a nasty guy on the side of the sidewalk yelled at them. And so the following day, the 85-year-old guy went back to him and talked to him. He says, I see this guy here, and I, I'm trying to build a relationship with him because he saws everything as, you know, how can he be against reducing nuclear weapons? But anyway, so, uh, so he saw him, and he's just sitting outside in a folding aluminum chair. And he said, um, and the chair looked pretty comfortable. She said, that's a nice aluminum folding chair you're sitting in. Do you like it? Yes, I like this aluminum folding chair. And trying to build some relationships, some connections, honest, but some connections. And after about an hour, they built a relationship. And he was understanding, yeah, maybe this is worth, you know. But trying to feel, find something in common, build something. And, and, and I go back to the issue of vision. People have a vision or different visions, but there's certain parts of visions that people share. They want air to breathe. They want water they could drink. They won't say it. They, they want these things. And that pushes them beyond their immediate boundary. So I think the vision itself is really a common vision is like core to moving ahead. And then in the book, I put uh, a dozen steps that you could go through to get to some actions. But, um, but I think you have to find some commonality and grow on that. That's my, I guess that's my bottom line, how I see things. Yeah, that's, that's very solid advice. And I'm sure that works for a very wide range of things. Now, like you were talking about in those practical steps there in the final chapter, you present a toolbox of leadership strategies that are meant to guide newcomers. 
Yes. Can you give me an overview of some of the do's and don'ts of planning, organizing, and facilitating community building processes? Yes. So I talk about what I call adapted leadership. And uh, I took a course in 1984 from Ron Heifetz at the Kennedy School. He's a psychiatrist, <laughs> leadership to us, uh, mid-career public administrators. Okay. And leadership, how I see it, is getting, the, and it, this all adaptive leadership is getting people not to look at the problems they're avoiding. It's like therapy, okay? People go to therapy because they're avoiding things, mostly. My bad experience, whatever it is. Uh, so the big first challenge is to get people to look at things they're avoiding. Not easy, and not get, um, not be the messenger that gets killed off in the process. People don't want to see things, right? Then the second step is to get people to take responsibility for them and do their work to fix it. So if you look at uh, leadership in that approach is getting people to face things they're avoiding and helping them do their work. Um, and then if you're really successful, this is um, some great leaders in Romania I talked to, their definition was we're successful at leadership if they don't need us anymore. So the goal then is to get yourself out of the picture. So when the group says, look what we did and you're out of the way, you've done your job. Mm. And many of the leaders, they want to say, look at my name on the plaque for the new blah, blah, blah. So the goal is to make yourself invisible, but get them to look at the issues they're avoiding and then do the, their work and support them, get them, help them with resources, whatever it is, logistics, but get out of the way. That must be difficult because a lot of the people who are attracted to leadership in the beginning are doing so as to scratch an itch for their ego. And it seems like the only way to be effective at this is to remove the ego from the equation. Right. That is the challenge. There's an O expression that says, it's amazing what we could get accomplished if everyone doesn't need credit for everything. <laughs> it's a good way of putting it. Okay. And that, I think, is a true sign of, of, of effective leader. And... Can you recommend some techniques or maybe some activities that you can start to work on to look at this as a maybe benevolent leadership process, one that doesn't necessarily include the credit that you need or taking your ego out of this in order to be able to move forward and get more people involved and take ownership? Well, I think you would probably agree that if you're involved in something and your input mattered, you're more interested in staying involved, mm -hmm. right? Yes, definitely. And if you wrote something and your input didn't matter, you're out of there, right? Why, why, you know, I'm not needed. So the, the question is how to get people input, get them involved and be needed in a way um, so that they say, okay, I actually contributed. Right? Definitely. So when we opened, <clears throat> when we opened the recycling center in Little Town in Vermont, 10,000 people, um, we had a thousand people show up on Saturday morning with snow blowing outside because we had the kids in all the schools do some of the recycling signage and artwork. And we had, we had the color guard march in um, to celebrate that this is a patriotic thing. And we had lots of citizens. So by getting everyone involved, a thousand people owned that new recycling center. They all played a part from the, from the local business people who started recycling, we supported it from the teachers and the students from parents so get people involved and let them be part of the solution 
And so moving into, I guess, other parts of the leadership role, after yeah. you've got people taking ownership and feeling like this is theirs, that they have a say in it, what are some mm-hmm. of the other do's and don'ts of moving forward? Well, you need some systems in place that people agree upon because you can't, no one wants to go to a thousand committee meetings. So, uh, uh, so you need to get systems in place and a work plan. And so now it gets basically, okay, you have a vision, you look at the barriers that you have to deal with to get there. You look at the resources to deal, get over those barriers. It might be an agency, it may be funding, whatever it is. You look at those, you look at people who wanna work on the different elements of the overall uh, vision and they come together. And as a group, it's like a beehive. They stay alive all winter because they cluster and they take turns who's gonna generate the heat as they slowly eat their honey. And that, again, the ecological model of feedback. So, <laughs> I love uh, that. So, so if everyone's doing a part of the vision, okay, and maybe one person part of the vision is that big, but they're really interested in this and they find two other people to work with and they get progress on that. Okay. Then they say, well, I'm part of this. I help solve the problems. And you put it together, you actually have something. Uh, it's, 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 it's somewhat threatening to leaders who I'm now the mayor and I know all the best do. But one of, one of uh, the colleague I worked with gave the book, like review the book and he immediately gave a copy to his mayor. <laughs> because, That's great. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I would say is that you get everyone involved in parts of getting to where the group as a whole wants to go, doing pieces. And you need a system in place, feedback loops, um, maybe four or five working groups, um, uh, liaisons that check in every monthly, you know. And then you get together and celebrate once a year. And that's, my favorite, <laughs> and my favorite celebration system was to have a competition for the bake-off. Um, people bring their favorite desserts in. They all get numbered. No one who brings them in. They cut in little pieces, and everyone gets five dots. And whoever gets the most number of dots get a $50 bill at the end of recognition. And everyone has a dessert, and everyone eats so much sugar that the energy <laughs> is amazing. So one person at a public meeting says, this is the best public meeting I have ever gone to. <laughs> And no one leaves early. (laughs) (laughs) See, these types of tangible examples, I think we need more of, because though the principles and the concepts in the book make perfect sense, people might still be looking, people myself, uh, might still be looking for little activities that can get the ball rolling and can start these conversations and these connections. Do you have more like that? Well, I actually, I think I put that in the book. So I said, you got to tell, yes. Throughout the book, I have uh, lots of short stories. There's 26 case studies, but I think I have about another 50 short stories of what people did that turned it around. For example, uh, we tried to pass a bond for five towns to improve our school system. I, we had single pane glass for New Hampshire. The boilers were old, the roofs leaked, and every year the bond got voted down. So finally, someone said, we are going to build the agricultural extension off the school ourselves. So a bunch of people came together. It took about six months or so to plan it and um, donated supplies. And we built in one weekend, a new greenhouse, a classroom for the egg school. And right on the building, we had hundreds of people from the, from the five towns come together to do this. And at the end of the weekend says, look, we did it ourselves. Those hundreds of people were all 
now part of the school system. The following year, they appointed uh, representatives from the town, a worker, uh, not, not consultants, but actual like local people who were happened to be a retired engineer or the heating system person. And they looked at all the schools and they made a recommendation. We need money for these 17 things, okay? They went to the voters, it passed. Because everybody was now part of the school system. Mm. By putting some nails into the greenhouse or, you know, siding. That makes a lot of sense. Once you're participating in it, once you've taken a role, it's it's yours, at least a part of it. And you're and going you to be to that much more invested in the outcome. You talk to neighbors. Do you know who they were? The other town over? It's not the bad town. It's the other town, you know? Yeah. 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 So things like that. It's, it's constantly bringing people together. Someone at once introduced me as a serial collaborator. <laughs> <laughs> That's high praise. That's a really good title. <laughs> That's a I love bad that. Term. <laughs> Pretty bad. He was the <laughs> president of the college. Anyway, so, uh, so I truly believe in that. And then get out of the way. Hmm. Now, getting these things started still requires a certain amount of individual responsibility and people to take some initiative to do some of the organizing or sometimes physical work that it takes to get them off the ground. And I've been a part of these discussions when we're starting community projects where everybody is on board with the idea, but nobody either has the time or is willing to take the step to actually do some of the work required to move it forward. How do you get past that barrier? Does it require some delegation? Well, there's usually groups, you gotta, there are always groups in organizations, in towns. For, so for example, let's say a town, they wanna to do the next master plan for the next 10 years of what we're town gonna go. There's, first, there's a few people in the town, but there's not enough people. There's a planning office, something. There's often a number of NGOs. There may be social NGOs that work with low-income people. There might be environment NGOs. So you get the infrastructure. Don't replace the infrastructure, social infrastructure. Bring them together. A lot of people, their egos, we just do it ourselves. No, the goal is all this social infrastructure is there in pieces. Your job is to bring them together. And you'd be amazed if you just look at your community, what groups are caring about these things, bring them together and say, we want an initiative to help, say, build a, start our our local community foundation for the town. Here's what we have to do. And if these five groups get together, we have enough capacity to bring people together and do this and set this up create this community foundation that would support all of us in some way. And then we get, we're, we're done. People do not want to get involved where they can never check out. I mean, how many times have you been invited to be on a group and without any end to it? Right, so, right. You feel, feel like, like you're getting right. roped into something. Exactly, you never get out. So you say, this is a three month project. Do this or six months. Can you do these things? And they say, okay, I guess to the beginning, the end, it makes sense. It fits our mission of our organization. It fits our broader community. And so a lot of the work we do here, this area, is um, I, I run a nonprofit uh, historic mill renovation. And one of our teams is called Partnerships. And all they're doing is how we can work with other groups and share our resources and work together. And it's amazing the resources when people that are already in your community. Hmm. Now, also, this is an important thing, I think. Please, go ahead. When, these, when you bring these people together, these groups, um, they, you're building trust. And it's more difficult for the divisive, angry people to divide the community. And right now, would you see this happening everywhere in the United States and other places? Those who 
are get power by dividing, and um, then they can control and anger um, and let their, you know, more totalitarian type leaders. Uh, it actually builds a base that's more difficult for them to uh, uh, divide. Yeah, that's really important. And you bring up an excellent point about how easy it is for people to come together over a shared enemy, I think is another way of saying what you just mentioned. And it seems like it's difficult to find these other commonalities that can supersede this antagonistic energy of bringing people together in order to fight something external or to overcome something that is plaguing them. But right. it, there have to be better ways to bring people together to accomplish something positive rather than just fight against something that they are against. Have you found these other motivators that are more powerful than that? Well, I think people are very motivated with their surroundings. For example, we have a lake in our town. We're having a, we have a, a year-long program called Celebrate Water, which looks at protecting the water and our water resources. And so we're having a whole effort around this large lake where people have been conflict over the years where they all share some commonality. They want to protect the lake, water. But what does that mean for the chemicals they put on their lawn that feed into the lake or what, you know what I mean? So you look at things people really care about. So water bodies, um, their schools, their kids, safety of the kids. There's lots of things they share. And they'll fight about every specific little policy change about those issues. But you need to back up and look at the system. And then, yes, there are barriers. You have to find those, but you got to find the commonalities first. So I think mm -hmm. uh, they're uh, in, in a local area, they're ecological systems they have where they live, the air. I grew up in LA, I know the air. <laughs> uh, but here's water and other issues, uh, schools and parks, open spaces. Or like the guy said at this, that meeting, 10 acres within 10, 10 minutes. We live in New Hampshire. We should have access to us, open space. Yeah. Um, and how to do that. And then the groups come out. There are conservation groups, social groups, local business groups, because th th that affects the businesses and the communities, the quality of the environment, the schools. So I think it's always trying to find the commonality that's they have share in common rather than what they're angry against. That, that could go in the wrong direction really bad. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the Ukrainians, they want to maintain a country that they feel they could, they, they know what it, it's like being under communist regime, Russian communist regime. Right. They want a country that they can actually be free, make decisions. That's driving them, right? They're angry at the Russians, but what's driving them is what they want for their future. Yeah, yeah. That self-determination is a powerful motivator. They're very much, and, and it's a horrible situation, but that's what's driving them, right? It's not just anger at the Russians, it's what they want their future to be. Yeah, and I think bringing the conversation to the connection with that vision or hope for something better rather than just diminishing or overcoming the negative aspects or the antagonists of the moment is what exactly. is going to prevail in the long run. That's right. All they would do is put another dictator in charge. Right. That, that happened in South America a lot. You see it. 
from African countries. Yeah. And so Mandela and those people thought about their future, not just getting this bad guy here, right? Three framing. It's surprising how often that's missing in these overthrow of government scenarios, right? It's, we need to get yeah. rid of this person or this regime, but there isn't much of an agreement about what needs to come and replace it. And I'm sure there are micro versions of that, not just at state levels. Right. And that's really important. Yeah. And, and local levels too, all levels, what we want for our community. So we had a big thing in our community about electing our new board, town council, uh, big debates, right? Yeah. Same thing, right? Uh, so, yes, I'm, I'm hoping that the 12 principles is not, they aren't my principles, by the way. They're just what people said. I'm putting them together in, in big boxes, right? And then I asked them how they did these things and I got their, you know, and so I wanted to give practical tools of how they do these things. But I take no uh, ownership of this is what you need to do. That's what people said. Mm. I think we're doing really excellent jobs. So I think that's the important thing. For sure, for sure. Now I'm gonna throw a scenario at you, which is very dear to my heart, which is the scenario that I'm in. I'm getting ready to move to a small farm in a community in the center of Catalonia, which is well known for being proud of its culture and its heritage and its, its language, which I do not yet speak. I can communicate <laughs> with people perfectly well in Spanish, but yeah. if anybody has any knowledge of recent history in Catalonia and the independence efforts, um, this is the area of the, of the province where a lot of that is, is the strongest, this independence fervor. Yes. And um, we're working to, well, integrate into this small community and do some ecological projects, especially with the farm that we'll have, and also hope to grow it into the surrounding community and maybe even into the county and do some work at a larger level beyond just our own land. Now, I'm looking for ways to, I guess, integrate into the community. Uh, I'm, I'm working on learning the language, and I, am, yeah. I, know, that, I know that's a key one from many other places that I've lived. That's a good first step. Um, but also starting to ask the questions and to create the space and the environment for people to start to share their ideas. This is not a particularly connected community. It doesn't have like a center and it's a very small population of people who mostly live there only seasonally because there's a lot of vacation properties in the area. Right. And so trying to create an identity within this town that is, is somewhat fractured, um, mm -hmm. but not from any you know, deep-seated resentment or like you might find elsewhere. What are some ideas that you might have for ways that I can start to accomplish what I just laid out? Well, um, I think one way is an invitation mm -hmm. to come to um, visit your farm, uh, offer something as a, to the visitors. You could have a, you know, like an informal gathering, not, not, a, not like you're trying to sell your products. Uh, but offer a place where the people could come together and maybe like in, in this town here, one of, when I did a visioning for our, our town of Alstead, I asked them what was most important about our community that we really wanted to value. And they said, the potlucks. 
<laughs> that was one of the first ideas I had right away because no, 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 there's they a said, nice big dining this, area there. This is this is an environmental conservation program. We yeah. put a lot of land in conservation around the lake from this process, but they started with the potlucks. Yeah. Okay. A place they could gather. There's a place in the town now that has a big uh, timber frame shelter and a mud oven that makes pizzas. And every week now, they say they sell bread. It's a wonderful bakery. But every, every Wednesday, they make pizzas for a fundraiser for a local community group. So all the profits every Wednesday, that pizza night, people are welcome to come down. They pay a few bucks for a pizza. They make, they give help set them up to what they want to put on it. And all the profits go to a group. They rotate different groups throughout the summer. So they're supporting all these groups and people get to come together. And it's so incredibly popular, this Breadworks place. Incredible. Because it's no big deal. You show up, you pay five bucks or whatever it is, uh, and you get a pizza there. And you see all the people who are there for, say, this, this school that's the fundraiser this, this week or this farm that's the fundraiser the following week. And you meet these people. Some of the people you know, the neighbors. Other ones, you meet new people. You get a pizza. And, and, the, and the group is supporting the profits for that once, Wednesday. They have a regular making business that's quite big. Uh, but that Wednesday, all the profits go to that one uh, group. It's fabulous. Nothing brings together people like food. I can I can show you I can send you the video clip of that. The, the, we did a video the, uh, the mill I run. We do uh, virtual programs. We did a video clip of that showing the gathering. I'll send it to you. It's it's great. So you have if you have a farm, you have open land. You might want to do certain things that would get people to come and share some food and uh, you know. Yeah, that was one of the first things that I thought about too because we tried to do something similar when I lived back in Guatemala. And we were struggling for a while, like we spent a lot of our efforts in the beginning in building the house and getting established so that we could actually live there. But over time, we were noticing that we didn't have the amount of people coming by and the communication and the collaboration that we were hoping for in the beginning. And one of the first things that we identified is like, well, we don't have a big enough table to host more people. And right. as soon as we realized that our infrastructure was limiting the amount of people that we could actually accommodate to come over, we realized yeah. that one of the easiest things that you can do is just build a larger table. Exactly. And here they, 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 didn't, they built a large shelter so they could have picnic tables underneath it mm -hmm. because of the rain. Yeah, okay? exactly. And it's only summer, because but you know, it was great. Unfortunately, yeah, now they have sellout. We have no, we, we only have so many people could handle. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's a good problem to have. But it, I mean, it, it's a really good example of how you can actually create infrastructure that it promotes collaboration and community. Absolutely. Absolutely. These um, communal spaces uh, are essential. Oh, uh, mm -hmm. a, a, absolutely. I was involved with uh, the, uh, the bike, bike system for the city of Keene. We said to him 30 years ago, uh, you don't have any bike system here. Uh, the roads are dangerous, kids, you know. And says, well, we tried it, but no one was interested. Well, we'll give it a shot. That's what they, no one was interested. Uh -huh. So we spent two, three months, not, not very much money, but we got everyone to show up. The governor, the mayor, not the governor, the mayor and the city council and local people, bike, bike people and all that. And then we brought all these bike maps and says, okay, we want to design a master plan for all the bicycling paths for the city. And you're, gonna, you're here to do it. You know the city better than I do. So we broke up three groups. They had these big plans of all the roads. They started designing 
the master plan for the bike system. And then we put them all three together. We gave the city council, here's a proposed master plan. They've now have raised millions of dollars wow. with an incredible growing bike path system. They had priority one, priority two, you know what I mean? But the process of everyone designing the bikes, and then they created their own nonprofit from this, uh, Pathways for Keen, because they, they, they talked to each other, they liked this, they want to do this, they created, now they're 501c3 nonprofit, they raised the matching funds for the federal money and all that. So you, it's, it's getting these people together to share some commonality. Man, I love that example. Well, look, uh, Jim, we're starting to come to the end of our time. Yeah. And I have done my best to listen to what you're talking about in the ways that we talked about listening more deeply. And especially when it comes to asking those important questions, I want to end this interview by asking you, what did I forget to ask? <laughs> um, that's a good question. <laughs> well, I think maybe why did I bother writing this book? How about that one then? Why did you bother write, writing this book? I was about ready to retire after, you know, it's 70. And I wanted to leave something behind. Well, I think this book is a fantastic example of successful community endeavors from around the world. I personally got a ton of new ideas of things and activities and processes that I could perhaps trial in this new project that I had mentioned earlier and has given me a lot of hope that these processes are, are worth investing in and are possible in some of the most bleak environments and scenarios that many of us lose hope in. And so at least for those reasons, I really encourage people to take a look and hopefully get some more inspiration the way that I did from this book, Building Community. Thank you. And I really enjoyed your thoughtful questions. And, and I think your future plans are right in line with what I think is, you really have a lot of joy in your life. <laughs> well, I'll keep in touch with you. I'm sure I will reach out again for some advice as I move forward in this plan. And certainly getting that language down is the first step. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much for your kind interview questions. And I really enjoyed this. It was such a pleasure, Jim. Let's be in touch. I'll talk to you thanks, again soon. Okay. Cheers. Thanks once again to Jim Gruber. Now, I'll be posting all the contact links that he mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all of the previous episodes from the last five seasons for free. Before I wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. If you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. And for those of you who stuck around to learn about the book giveaway promotion, all you have to do to be eligible for a free copy of Building Community is to send me a private message on the Discord server letting me know that you'd like to be entered to win. It's really that easy. If you're in the USA or in Canada, you could win a hard copy of the book, but even if you're somewhere else in the world, we can get you a digital copy sent out to you as well. So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Now that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.